welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, Gilded Germany. They are one of the lesser-known groups to immigrate to America, but also one of the largest, synonymous with beer, farming, the Midwest, and heated accusations of divided loyalty between America and their home nation. They helped create and develop the country's food and music to a higher degree of cultivation, while maintaining their ethnic customs and language for generations. The story of the Gilded Age is very much the story of the apogee and decline of German-Americans in American life. And with me here to discuss both is Professor Walter Kamphafner, author of Germans in America, A Concise History. Walter, welcome. Thank you, Ari. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. So let me start with the question I ask uh, almost all of my guests uh, when it comes to the Gilded Age. Let us imagine that an erstwhile uh, German version of Alexis de Tocqueville uh, comes to visit the United States at the beginning of our period, say around 1865-66, uh, the middle, say around 1880 or the 1890s, and at the end, after the First World War, to inquire into the state and condition uh, of Germans in America, how they're doing, what they're doing, are they being successful, are they uh, integrating, and uh, who are they loyal to? And what would they find? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Okay, immediately after the Civil War, you would find that uh, Germans got credit, sometimes deserved, sometimes not, for uh, electing Lincoln and for uh, winning the Civil War. They were overrepresented in their participation in the Union Army. Uh, there were some states, particularly Illinois, uh, where they played an important role in electing Lincoln. In fact, Lincoln even bought a silent partnership in a German language newspaper to keep it from going under and keep it in the Republican fold. Uh, this was also perhaps a time, especially in, in border states, where Germans had the most influence in American politics because uh, a lot of Confederate sympathizers were, were disfranchised. So this is particularly true, for example, in my home state of Missouri. So uh, things were looking up in many ways uh, for German-Americans, and this may have been uh, the height of their loyalty to the Republican Party. Uh, they ended up being perhaps the largest swing group in American politics in the Gilded Age. Um, 1880, in some ways, uh, 
things were looking even better for German Americans. Uh, their immigration numbers uh, had hit record heights. Their progress in agriculture and industry was, was uh, continuing. They had a few at least influential politicians, Karl Schurz, the 48er political refugee among them. Uh, they had succeeded in getting their heritage language in the curriculum of a lot of public schools, sometimes just as a subject, one hour every day, other times uh, in actual two-way immersion programs, as they were called, in cities like uh, Indianapolis or Cleveland or Cincinnati or Milwaukee, half the school day in German, half in English. And we're talking about public schools here, uh, parochial schools, the German content was often even greater. So uh, by 1880, uh, you're looking in some ways at at the apogee of German-American influence and German-American numbers in the United States. Um, and any time that politicians tried to mess with this, uh, both Illinois and Wisconsin in 1888, uh, the Republicans made the, made the mistake of trying to require English as a language of instruction, not just in the public, but also in the parochial schools. And it caused uh, a huge backlash and uh, a significant German swing to the Democratic Party uh, as a result of these, this cultural imperialism, if you want to call it that. It didn't last that long because uh, Democrats had the bad luck of being in the White House when a depression hit, but nonetheless, uh, Germans continue to be uh, a swing voting group. Then comes World War One, And I think the German Americans were misunderstood both by their cousins back in the fatherland and by their Anglo-American neighbors. Back in the fatherland, uh, people assumed that because Germans were not able to prevent the, the re-election of Woodrow Wilson or to prevent American entry into World War I, that meant that German Americans had immersed themselves in the melting pot, or maybe the bleaching vat is a better term for it, and uh, totally given up their language and culture. Anglo-Americans, on the other hand, uh, mistook this loyalty to language and culture for political loyalty to Germany. And this was simply not true in most cases. In fact, you see already in the Civil War era, the degree of loyalty to the United States that German Americans saw. And you see a great deal of repression against German Americans in World War I, although this varied a lot from place to place. Um, if there were very few Germans, uh, it wasn't worth bothering with them. If there were 
a lot of Germans. It was dangerous to mess with them. But um, areas that fell in the mid-range uh, was where you see the greatest amount of repression uh, against the German language and culture. And so uh, you have German in public schools being largely wiped out. You see German in parochial schools also being severely restricted, although uh, in the case of the Nebraska law, it got overturned by the Supreme Court, but by then uh, the damage had largely been done. But um, it was not the same everywhere. And maybe in my native state of Missouri, uh, German Americans came off the best because they had been much more decisive unionists than a lot of the Anglo-Americans who were whistling Dixie. In any case, uh, my father uh, was still confirmed in the German language in 1927 in Missouri, uh, and he could still take the German language in high school, which for him uh, fattened up his GPA because uh, it may have been his first language, or at least uh, he grew up bilingually. That's a that's a really excellent, very thorough introduction. Uh, I wanted to ha hang my hat a bit on what you were talking about about the pressure between Germany and natives. Uh, you mentioned you discussed this a lot in your book, and rightly so. About the, on the one hand, uh, German Americans they're very proud, uh, they're very proud Americans. They often aligned with the northeastern or old stock Anglo establishment on things like uh, slavery and stuff like that. Uh, on the other hand, they were, as you said, they practically saw the right to drink, quote unquote, responsibly, at least, uh, as practically a constitutional right. And they saw many of the many of the ideas of temperance and Sunday laws as way too invasive, way too over the top, way too zealous. Um, on the other side of it, you talk about how um, the Germans had a lot of run-ins and a lot of clashes with Irish Americans who also had their own issues with the, with the, uh, old stock native population, um, where, who they saw as kind of like, uh, almost like cultural hooligans. It sounds almost like the, the German Americans in the main were looking for like kind of a middle ground level of cultural respectability that combined religion, but wasn't like, I guess, uh, anti-fun or a killjoy. Am I right? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, among the issues that Germans had with Irish was, uh, you know, the fact that Irish were overwhelmingly democratic uh, Irish Catholics. They were more polarized in the direction of the Democratic Party than Black Americans are this day and age. And, uh, you know, if they had been Republicans, they, um, I can assure you that they would have been portrayed very nicely by cartoonist Thomas Nast, but who was, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool militant Republican. Um, another thing, uh, certainly there is an anti-Catholic element among Protestant Germans, but even among Catholic Germans, uh, they are competing with the Irish Catholics uh, for influence in the Catholic Church. And of course, the Irish got there first and spoke English, so they had a great advantage that way, as did Irish Americans in politics. So, so this jealousy factor uh, also comes into play there. And 
you know, Germans played on the stereotypes of the boozing, brawling, fighting Irish, uh, and and uh, in that way shared a lot of the prejudices of uh, Anglo-Protestant America. So in addition to sharing prejudices, I'd like to press it a little further. Uh, I recently read, uh, let me just look it up, a book called Moral Reconstruction that talked about the efforts during the Gilded Age to establish uh, prohibition uh, by, a fellow, by a professor named Gaines Foster, who I interviewed in a previous episode. And you already have mentioned how they didn't like the, the uh, impositions on beer or being forced to teach in um, being forced to teach in English. But what about, say, uh, other restrictions that uh, lob religious lobbyists at this time tried to pass, like, uh, say, the Comstock Act or uh, the Mann Act? Were they also dead set against that? Were they like no zealousness ever or were they sort of uh, more selective on that issue? I'm not very well informed on that. But I suspect that German Americans uh, had little use for the Comstockers. Uh, a lot of people doing family history are surprised to find uh, how many of their ancestors were conceived, if not born out of wedlock. A lot of German states had marriage restrictions, which were supposed to prevent pauper marriages which they kind of did, but they did not do so well in preventing pauper births. Uh, so that inclined German-Americans against Puritanism. It's only one case, but the city of St. Louis actually uh, tried legalizing and regulating prostitution in the 1870s. Uh, and I suspect that the German influence came into play here because uh, Germans were the largest ethnic element in the population and were about to elect the first uh, German mayor of St. Louis uh, in 1876. Uh, so that aspect, uh, I do not think that Germans would have shared to any great extent with Anglo-Americans. And certainly uh, they had no use for what they called cold water fanatics, prohibitionists. Uh, that was another thing that made William Jennings Bryant uh, the perfect candidate for scaring away Germans. Uh, he later achieved notoriety for serving grape juice at State Department functions when he was Wilson's Secretary of State. Okay, that's a great answer. Um, so if I may swing back to the th places where uh, German-Americans generally agreed uh, with uh, with the with the uh, older Anglo-American establishment, the issue of slavery. Um, in your book, you describe how, although they didn't necessarily agree, especially the free thinker element, they didn't necessarily agree with opposing slavery on very zealous religious grounds. They were nevertheless strongly opposed to the issue, and as you noted, those those who had to serve in the Confederate Army did so quite reluctantly. Um, I found it interesting that you noted that. Uh, during Reconstruction, as the North slowly became disenchanted and kind of gave up on its idea of trying to force the South to treat uh, black citizens equally, the Germans nevertheless did not subscribe to the kind of rigid biological racial explanations 
that uh, other Anglos uh, did. And it's, I find it interesting and even refreshing given the later history of, uh, of German Americans. Is it, would it be fair to say that they had more of, I guess, a, a, a cultural bias as they uh, slowly became, they slowly distanced themselves? That's probably true. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised myself reading this one German Catholic news paper in the Reconstruction era that they mostly attributed uh, black problems to environment rather than to heredity and for lack of opportunity, especially uh, being denied literacy, being basically treated like livestock. Um, and, and that was, I would think, a worst case scenario. The you know, Protestant or free-thinking Germans uh, were probably more, more progressive on that than, than were the uh, German Catholics who, you know, were mostly democratic in their affiliation, depending on where you're talking about. And to some extent, this black German coalition held up even down to World War I or beyond. Uh, the only uh, the only congressman in the Deep South who voted in favor of an anti-lynching bill that passed the House in 1922 was a Texas German by the name of Harry Wurzbach, a Republican, a rare, the only Republican in the Texas congressional Demo uh, delegation at that point. And you see something similar in St. Louis. So now that we've got the question of relations between uh, German Americans and both the native and other immigrant or disadvantaged groups uh, aside, uh, I want to ask you, I recently uh, also, in addition to enjoying your book, uh, I read a book about uh, music in the Gilded Ages, uh, music of the Gilded Age, sorry, um, where German Americans play an incredibly prominent part in bringing European style culture, especially German, but not only uh, opera and classical music uh, to the masses in New York and many other cities as America rapidly urbanized. Uh, and you mentioned it in your book as well. I was curious, um, did, did, they, did, did these people have like, it was just them or did they have students who were also Germans or were they not particular about who particular were their students? That's question one. And question two, um, Germany also, in addition to classical music, has a very proud tradition of all sorts of popular songs, especially uh, beer drinking songs. And I was wondering if any of that rubbed off on the general American populace or whether that kind of stayed confined to the German community. I'm pretty sure in places like New York uh, that it reached out to other groups as well. And, uh, you know, you see that with the German beer garden culture, uh, also some Anglo-Americans found this attractive. Uh, also listening to German music in the beer gardens, the two, two went together. Uh, and ironically, there's a good book on that subject. I can't remember the title. Ironically, it was less the World War I repression that undid serious German music uh, in the United States, and especially in New York, than it was the lighter fare of, uh, of German-American 
I don't know what you would call it, uh, kind of uh, uh, trivial is perhaps too much said, but uh, more humorous uh, material rather than the serious, you know, uh, Goethe or Lessing or anybody like that. Uh, so that also is something that uh, is largely then uh, a, a thing of the past uh, by the end of World War One. Uh, to some extent, uh, it gets carried on in the Yiddish theater, and and the two do overlap somewhat in their uh, participants and constituency. But uh, by the end of World War One, uh, most of this uh, German American cultural influence, with the exception of somebody like Walter Damrush. Uh, was a thing of the past. Which brings us, as you keep mentioning over and over again, to the great, and rightly so, uh, as the great, at least partial, breaking point uh, in the development of uh, German-American life, and that's the First World War. Uh, I, I, so I think I'm going to ask you a number of questions on this because it's such an important topic. It was such a, an impactful event. Um, you mentioned how how dare the German Americans vote for Wilson? But the truth is, is that in 1916. But the truth is, is that uh, if you, according to Michael Nyberg in his uh, great book, uh, the, uh, pa the Path to War, he notes that no presidential candidate, Democratic, Republican, or otherwise, was clamoring for war in 1916. They were all basically peace candidates, and it's also hard for me to imagine a political reality in which say the Republican candidate Hughes wins and Germany still for its own strategic reasons declares unrestricted submarine warfare. I find it very hard to believe that America would nevertheless have not gone to war. I mean, the, the, the vote in the, the vote in the Senate to go to war was not, it was almost unanimous. And this included people who deeply opposed Wilson. Are they not, were they not like, were the Germans who were protesting German Americans who voted for Wilson not kind of blind to how much unrestricted submarine warfare and the Zimmerman telegram angered ordinary Americans? There really yeah. was no pro-war, anti-war candidate in the 1916 election. Uh, and most of the German provocations came after the election rather than before. Uh, you could make as good a case for Wilson as an anti-war president, as for Charles Evans Hughes, as you said. Uh, and both parties were divided. Uh, within the Republican Party, you have Hughes on the one hand, who uh, leaned towards neutrality, whereas you had Teddy Roosevelt fulminating against the hyphen and against anyone who dared speak any language but English. Uh, but once the war broke out, uh, most of this ambivalence and on the part of German Americans was gone. They may have previously preferred that the United States may remain neutral, but afterwards, uh, as one German American newspaper wrote, uh, we stand and fall uh, with the land of our choice. Uh, I've seen German American newspapers who use the term fatherland with respect to the United States, not with respect to Germany, just as one example. Okay. Um, 
I'm curious, uh, you mentioned in the beginning of our interview about how Germans were repressed in various ways, especially, as you said, where there were not too few Germans that nobody cared, but not too many Germans that they weren't, you know, couldn't really fight back. Um, I'm curious as to how, but nowadays there is kind of a, 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 a narrative or approach to events that, events that really sounds uh, victimizing. I'm curious, did that start uh, at the time or near the time, or was that developed later as German-Americans uh, looked back on events uh, either before or after World War II? I think that was mostly a more recent development. Uh, the idea that there's nothing more to ethnicity besides victimization. Uh, you see it even more egregiously in the case of World War II, uh, comparing the few minor selective internment of German Americans with the wholesale indiscriminate internment of Japanese Americans who did not have the option of naturalization like German Americans did and who were interned also uh, not only the immigrant generation, but the second and third generation as well. Even some World War I vets of the U.S. Army Japanese Americans are interned. I can assure you that did not happen to any German Americans. Okay, makes sense. Um, so let me finish off with an interesting question I had because um, I'm on Twitter and I often, uh, one of the types of people I follow are uh, people who just love doing all these demographic maps of who voted in this election and where did they vote the most in this election. And one of the things they pointed to and which I find pretty kind of stunning is that um, the 1920 election that brought Warren Harding into power uh, as we know, it was one of the most sweeping Republican victories ever. Uh, but one of the most interesting things was, was that it was a mat, it looked like at least, I'm sure you'll tell me if I, if I have it wrong or there's more nuance, looked like an absolutely massive uh, German swing in favor of the Republican Party, almost as like a, a, a great act of revenge against Woodrow Wilson for what they uh, uh, had to go through in World War One. And I thought, on the one hand, that makes sense. On the other hand, the Republican Party very much was the party of nativism, the party of much more favorable towards prohibition. So what, what drove this, this great swing aside from the general uh, discontent that was going on in the country at the time? Well, it depended some on where you looked. Uh, you know, at a national level, certainly the German Americans did resent the repression against them, and that that uh, resulted in a swing against the Democrats at the national level. Or if you look at prohibition, uh, you know, you have supporters on both sides, uh, particularly in the South, where you had very few Republicans. That was the first place to actually uh, enact prohibition. So, so that issue, I don't think, uh, came down very heavily on either side, partisan, uh, against either party. Uh, in terms of repression during the war, uh, if you look at state level elections, uh, there were places where the Republicans at the state level were as repressive as the Democrats at the national level. And in places like that, you had conservative Germans and Lutherans 
uh, voting socialist. You had, uh, for example, Davenport, Iowa, uh, electing a socialist mayor in the 1920s uh, because of this. So uh, this failure to recognize German-American loyalty and this uh, suppression particularly of the German language, uh, that caused a severe backlash among German-American voters and uh, occasionally uh, against Republicans at the state and local level as well. So, well, thank you very much. Um, both your book and this interview show me that uh, when you go from the m macro to the micro, there is always a lot of fascinating nuance in this story. And uh, I, for one, have learned a tremendous amount, and I hope that my listeners have, and I also hope that your listeners uh, pick up your book, which is very readable and very thorough and tells us a very important uh, chapter, not often not known enough about uh, American history. Professor Camp Hefner, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you as well. The pleasure was all mine.